Good morning to you, church. We come to bless the Lord, exalt his name, and thank him for his, the enormity of his generosity and grace and mercy to each of us. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read scripture, and we're going to be looking into Psalm 2 this morning, so you can ready yourself and, and be there. And... I think it would be appropriate, more than appropriate, that we, before we pray, want to thank God for his uh, faithfulness in the lives of some people here, in a special way, all of us, all of us. Um, It's good to see Troy and Susanna Powell with us today. Uh, we've, uh, We've tracked with you through the ups and downs of your physical ordeals, and Troy, you're your loyalty, your kindness, and your helpfulness to Susanna. And Susanna, in working through so much, we can hardly know where to begin and end on that list. Good to see you this morning. We thank God for you and for being with us today. And uh, Tuesday is a special, special day for Bill Thorne. Um, Bill's not made much of this here in the church over these uh, 50 three years, um, but uh, it's worth noting that uh, Bill is noted in, in, the, uh, in the Atlanta running world and in the newspapers, having run 53 Peachtree Road races, all of them up to this point. And he's going to be given a special uh, honor on this Tuesday morning He's, they're going to come by and pick him up at about 4.45 and take him downtown to Lenox. That's where, this is where the race begins. And for the first time in all these years, he will ride the course. <laughs> and what a privilege. He will be in the uh, presenting car that uh, leads the race and uh, leads everything that uh, transpires from 6.37 on to the last wave, uh, uh, crosses the starting line and finishes in Piedmont Park. But I want to say this, though. Bill is not defined by the fact that he's uh, done all these races and has worked hard in physical endurance and training. But I know this, since uh, Bill and I have been running and walking and talking and been together for at least 54 years together. And it was Bill who located this property way back and, and uh, was very much involved in, even came as we built and raised this first building here on this land in uh, 1980, 82, 81, 82. And so Bill, we thank God that you have been a witness to thousands, I mean thousands, of young people that you've coached. That stands out in my mind. That's what I've noticed, and with thanks to God, all of the young people, because you've not been ashamed of the gospel, you've stayed strong for him in public places and public recognitions. You didn't let the limelight cause that to dim your zeal for God in the gospel, and we're thankful. Now, if we had the time, we could go around. If, if memory would allow me, I could point out ways in which God has worked in your lives as well. well. Let's just come to the Lord and thank him.
Our God and our Father, we come to you, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. We thank you, O oh dear God, for your, your power, your infinite wisdom, your love, all that knows no end, all your mercies and your grace and your truthfulness. Oh, Lord, we always can trust you for what you've said. Thank you, Lord, for your the enormity of your grace and thank you for the peace that you give in Christ. Father, I pray now that you will open our eyes to this passage in Psalm 2, that we'll be able to get hold of it, rejoice in you, and that though we live in an upside-down world, that you're always right-side-up and you know how we should live in such a world, and you've told us and we thank you for this psalm and what it says. Now, Father, for those who will hear this message, hear about it, may it bring you, who are not with us because of uh, illness and being shut in, oh, take your word and bring it home to our hearts. All hearts, all of us, to know you better, to love you more. Now, we come to you for that guidance in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to read scripture, and I want you to follow with me. And it's going to be a bit different. I'm going to be reading from a translation. I just recently, I was a little behind the parade on this one, uh, to a translation I've been introduced to, and a study Bible that goes with it. And I want to read that, and I want us to, uh, I'll be commenting on it as we we go through the uh, scripture this morning in, in, in Psalm 2. Uh, it's, a, it's an extraordinary psalm, and I want you to follow with me now and, and read it as I read it. Uh, I, I think that th this, this may help. When David wrote this psalm, it was to have been sung. We're, we're going through four stanzas of a song in this psalm. The Psalms was, a, it was the, the hymn book, the songbook of Israel. And David wrote this, um, the warrior poet wrote this. He had been beset with opposition from day one to his kingship. First, just as the anointed king, and then when he was crowned the king, he even had some fellow Israelites who sought to bring him down and destroy him. Well, Saul led that band, and those loyal to Saul. And then all the enemies around Israel. If you read through uh, First, Second Samuel, and you see his story, David's story, if it weren't the Philistines who were trying to take him out, we had over to the east, we had the Amorites, we had the Moabites. These were territorial kingdoms with their own gods and their armies, great fighting forces. You had to the northeast, you had the Syrians. Way up to the northeast, way up, you had Assyria and Babylon. And you had these, and oh, I mustn't forget the Edomites that lived down to the south of the Dead Sea, though encircled, encircled. And he was, these, these nations were constantly seeking to bring Israel down as they sought to go after David 
and knock his feet out from under him, take him out. They wanted to destroy Israel. And there is a story behind that story. And that is the evil one himself, the seed of the serpent, seeking to do everything within his power to keep Messiah from coming to Israel. And this is what David had to deal with constantly. All right, all that, he wrote this. You with me? I'm going to be reading from the uh, English, uh, New English translation. Why do the rebel nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fall, fail? The kings of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and against his anointed king. They say, let's tear off the shackles they put on us. Let's free ourselves from their ropes. The one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. Then he speaks angrily to them and terrifies them in his rage, saying, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king says, I will announce the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. This very day I have become your father. Ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your personal property. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will smash them like a potter's jar. So now, you kings, do what is wise. You rulers of the earth, submit to correction. Serve the Lord in fear. Repent in terror. Give sincere homage. Otherwise, he will be angry, and you will die because of your behavior when his anger quickly ignites. How blessed are all who take shelter in him. What an explosive psalm this is and how much it tells us. And if David's circumstances were not enough, how about these? This is what I woke up to this morning, a sum of it, just some of it, and you did too. Whether you checked it out or not, it's there. Mass shooting leaves two people dead, dozens wounded at Baltimore block party. France in flames. Biden administration opens door to radical sunlight strategy to battle climate change. Male nudity featured in public Pride Day celebrations. UGA rallies for players accused of sex assaults. Ruling revives religious liberty debate. Incendiary devices found after fire at police training academy. Sexually explicit books tolerated in elementary school libraries. Millions of Americans choose cannabis as another state legalizes recreational pot use. Laws are passed to penalize those who refuse to use preferred pronouns. Harvard's dishonesty 
Honesty, scientist, is just the tip of the iceberg. The average age at which a boy is exposed to porn is nine years old. And the silence of churches with regard to the numerous social sores, raw running sores, abortion, and so-called gender affirmative care. Oh, I have only, I have only acknowledged the tip of the iceberg. Now, I'm going to do another reading for you. Let's do that. I'm going to read Psalm 2 again. And I'm, this time, I'm going to give you some word explanations. I want you to feel the fabric of this psalm. And then we're going to go back and we're going to reintroduce ourselves to the third stanza. We did stanzas one and two last week. I'm not saying that it was the world's greatest sermon, but I am saying it would be helpful if you did go to that, if you get it online and listen, it will give you the feel, the continuity of this psalm. But I'm now going to read from the English Standard Version, and I'm going to make a comment or two, and then we'll proceed from there. So if you're with me, you can listen well, write down however you wish to do this. What do the, na why, excuse me, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? I have a note here. This first stanza is all about human rebellion. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, oh, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, and against his anointed Hamashiach, Messiah, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. To say this and to be sure we're settled on this, that it is referring to the resistance to God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the gospel that he brings to this world. That's the primary, that's the foundational matter at which the world's launched their attack, their theological and philosophical missiles that they launch against God's true story in Jesus Christ. But it's, there's other thing, there are other things on top of it. There is the entirety of the moral law of God, which is despised and walked on and mocked and ridiculed. We'll replace it with another moral code that you will find much better. Insert sermon back to text. Listen. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Here, what we have flowing now in the second stanza the father's derisive laughter. This isn't funny laughter. This is a laughter of disgust. He holds them in derision. <laughs> you know, you pause to think here of 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the wise man? Has not made God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Goes with this. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king, my king, Jesus Christ, on Zion. Ah, Zion, that hill, that hill becomes, it is a hill, it's there. It's up from the city of David. Ah, that place where Abraham took Isaac, offered him up. You remember way back, Genesis 22. Oh, and then the history that begins to be built upon that city, oh, those hills there, that hill of Zion. And this is where the Temple Mount stood. Oh, and is, is it ever a, a fighting 
scrapping place now for Islam has put its holy shrine there right on this place, right there by the Western Wall. You've seen the pictures. This is where so much tension, who knows what kind of war will break out next over events that transpire there right next to Zion. End of that sermonette. Back to the passage. I will tell of the creed. The Lord said to me, now we have the third stanza, and here is the Son of God's declaration of the Father's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Hold on to that. I know some Jehovah's Witness may have knocked at your door and wanted to tell you something about that word. Hold that thought. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Whose? The son's heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. The word rabdas in the Hebrew here could be either rod or could be scepter. A scepter. You know what? A scepter. The king holds out the scepter. Remember the story of... Uh, in the book of Esther, in Ahasuerus, when uh, the queen wanted to come to him, and he had, if he accepts you, you touch the end of the scepter. I said, what's the scepter business? It was a symbol of the king's sovereign authority, his acceptance or rejectance, rejection, rejection. And he will, the scepter represents his power, his rule, his control, all that goes with it. All right. With this iron, with rod of iron, or the scepter. Interesting, too, if I may, I want to insert this. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament text, which was actually the text that Jesus, one of the texts he used, he knew, I think Jesus knew that he had memorized the Aramaic text, and the, he knew the Hebrew text, and he knew the Greek text. But this word, you shall break, in the Septuagint, that Greek translation, it says, you will shepherd them. And that's going to be the way in which it comes up in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 and 5 and 19 and 15. Shepherd them. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, we have the fourth stanza. O kings, be wise. It's been noted that there is a change in tone here. I know, I, I wish if I were a better reader, I could communicate the tone of this. It's, the, the psalm is poetry. Poetry is the language of feeling. It communicates truth, but it does in that it takes you into the actual sense experience of the moment. It's what poetry does. And in this point, at this point, there is a certain sensory effect of it would seem that there is a little modest softening of a tone because there is an appeal to repent. Listen, all this being known, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Or is that paraphrased by um, oh, the, the, the message? It's, it says, use your heads. <laughs> well... A little more to it than that, but okay, come on, get your head screwed on right. Wisdom, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Now we get these, we're peppered with these, well, actually beginning at the word wise, these five, five commands that demand responsibility. One is be wise, two, be warned, three, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now this, uh, this, this picture here, kiss the sun, that's always intrigued in readers and interpreters. What is this in verse 12, kiss the sun? It's, it's some sincere homage. It's, it's uh, submitting and bowing down and reverencing. Kiss the son, submit to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now the heat gets turned up here, but then come back again. Blessed are those, are all who take refuge in him. This is the Hebrew word, it's not barak, from which, you know, blessing, we all know that story, Second Chronicles 20, 26, barakah. This is the word ashray. So the word for bless or happiness is the word that begins Psalm 1-1, ashray, happy, with the best sense of that word, not circumstantial happiness, but soul happiness and enjoyment in the favor and grace of God. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, now that uh, you have been adequately hosed down with Psalm, Psalm 2 and its reading and awareness of the text. Now let's go and let's see how this unfolds in the third stanza. Do you need to look back if you want to look over your shoulder? Well, not literally, but figuratively, at least look in the bulletin. You have an outline there. But we're going to add some things as we go along and vary it. You'll notice this, <clears throat> that the very first theme that is launched here in verses 1 and 2, 3 is that I've stated it is the vaunted arrogance of the nations is doomed to futility. Hold on to that. And then when you come to verses four to six, God has chosen to exalt his son over the nations. Divine reaction to human impudence and unbelief. Now, third stanza, here's where we will launch into this today. Here is the divine rule, the declaration of the king. God the Son has the right to rule over the nations because of his resurrection. Now, this is going to, we have to do some fine examination, but we can't be too fine. We don't have the time for it. It's deserving of it. But you'll notice what comes up out of this, these statements here. God is making a declaration. He's declaring his sovereign right to rule because he conquered sin and death. I should have said God the Son. God the Son declares his right to rule because of his death and resurrection. And he has the right to the throne. What's this mean? The Lord is anointed speaks here. This is Jesus Christ, his pre-incarnate self speaking. The decree of which he speaks is found where? You know where it's found? Oh, it helps to know the Old Testament. That's why you ought to be reading your Bibles through so it just comes out at the pores of your skin. <laughs> the Davidic covenant in 2 
in 2 Samuel 7, 14, where it says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And that is where God speaks to David, to, through, to David, through David, and looks down to the end of time, to the final and eternal reign of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. But it's bound up in a real, everyday, foot on the ground, covenant with David. With David. That's what's happening there. But I want you to notice the title, son. Now, this word son is from the Davidic covenant ultimately becomes the designation for Jesus Christ as a king. Now, we got problems because we speak English. And when we think of son, we think of somebody who's biologically generated. I have a son. You have sons. This is not to be understood in the sense of a biological son. No, to speak of Jesus Christ as son means that he's God. It's idiomatic. He's speaking in the language, in the Hebrew language. A man who is good cannot share God's throne as Jesus Christ does. And one other thing here. Notice the statement, today I have begotten thee. This is not a reference to the birth of Jesus Christ. Don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses try to uh, trick you into some error on that one. We'll come back to that. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead we know this. Paul goes to this passage in Acts 13 and verse 33. Won't turn there. Mark it down if you don't have it. In the ascension of Christ, glorified humanity permanently entered heaven. What happened when Christ, after he died on the cross, resurrected, resurrected and ascended, and when he went into the presence, all oh, the imagination fails us here, what is that like? To go in the presence of myriads, millions of angels and believers who are already with the Lord and there he is in his glorified body. What a moment in redemptive history. That's what he's referring to here. And so then, this is the declaration. Now, Jesus received something for this, an inheritance. Ah, those inheritances. They do gather families together at the reading of the wills, don't they? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> he received his inheritance and his titles when he defeated death. There was an inheritance. There was something that he received from the Father. When he said, thou art my son, you know, the writer of Hebrews picks this up. Oh, to know our New Testament. This is why we need to read our Bibles through. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. For which, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten thee? The writer of Hebrews takes this passage from Psalm 2, and he argues for the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ and his superiority to the angels. He is no angel. No one's giving him a, a bona fide recognition when they want to speak to him as some high angel. Not at all. Not at all. I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. I'm going to say something more about Psalm 2-7. Uh, but let's get this. So today I have begotten you. In the resurrection, Jesus acquired a glorified human body that was a dramatic, important, eternally important movement in the plan of God that that happened. He went back to heaven as a person, the kind of person different from the kind of person he was. In addition, not in subtraction. So at Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he was finally and definitely appointed and installed in the messianic office. 
Very important to grasp and understand that. Now, as we move forward in this text, we're going to say something about verses 8 and 9. I am. Hold that. Put it in park. I want to say something about verse 7. I have, I'll take one, I want to kind of accordion it out in this verse 7. The Jehovah's Witnesses camp out on this verse, verse 7. They may, depending on what their study has been. And they do not study verses in context. That's their, one of their Achilles heels. It is not referring to the birth of Christ, as I said in Acts 13 and verse 33. It's referring to the resurrection. Jesus had no beginning. He was begotten out of Joseph's tomb. That's where he was begotten. Joseph's tomb, where he was buried. Jesus is the eternal son of God, and God is the eternal father. It's always been that way. Always the eternal father, always the eternal son. Never did come into a moment when it began. Not at all. Jehovah's Witnesses, sadly, how often some of us go by the kingdom hall. Do you pray for these people? It's a good thing. You may forget them a time or two, but, you know, it's not a bad thing when you go by, oh, Lord, open their eyes. Oh, that your sovereign spirit in their studies and gatherings and as they go to doors, oh, that the light of the gospel will break through the darkness that veils their eyes. They believe in a false Jesus. They can't go to heaven believing in the Jesus they believe in. Sad, sad, sad. Ah, the Mormons. Hmm. The Mormons, they say, they believe that Jesus before the incarnation was the spirit brother of Lucifer. Hmm. He was also a polygamist, the husband of the Mary and Martha in the New Testament, who was rewarded for his faithfulness by becoming the ruler of this earth. Uh, Mormons have uh, somehow achieved kind of a, um, almost a hero status in the decline of our nation morally because they have in some instances stood up from before some moral values which, which, with which we could align ourselves. But, oh my, it is not the, the, Jesus, the, the, the Jesus of the Mormons is not the Jesus of the Bible in the New Testament. Don't forget that. I'll say it. I have a little footnote here. Just a little footnote. I am tracking my way through the best I can. I mean, it's, there's so much to the, the chosen. Okay, the chosen. Uh, the acting is splendid. Uh, it's, and it's really intrigued a lot of people. And it's got a lot of valuable moments in it. Um, I didn't plan to go here, and I get in trouble when I can do this, but I think I need to do this because this is what I experienced with this. There is an opening scene in The Chosen where uh, Jesus is asked, it's one of the early episodes, he's asked about, he mentions uh, death wish. Do we have a death wish? And Philip is listening. Is it death wish? No. Jesus canceled that. Not a wish. But death, obviously you can tell by his countenance and what his, his body language. I need to think about this a bit more. I need to get away for a couple of days because Philip wants to know more about what Jesus meant about pondering death. And Jesus, I need to get a couple of days and think this through. I didn't pick this. I 
confession. I didn't pick it up the first time, the second time. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Do we have a Jesus who is trying to connect the dots as to why he's here in the incarnational work? Does he not know who he is and why he has come? I submit to you, he knew these things early on, early on in his life. He knew why he had come. He knew he was marching toward, moving toward the cross and would carry and, and die for sin. He knew that a sword would come into Mary's heart and so on. Okay, I didn't plan on all that. Let's go. Okay, let's, let's, let's just move to verses eight and nine. But keep this in mind. Oh, there are move every cult. Every cult errs on what it, how it views Jesus Christ. Don't be snowed. Christian science, Jesus is simply an, uh, an alliteration. Jesus Christ, according to Jehovah's Witness, is the second God. According to Buddhism, Jesus is the, is the avatar of Buddhism. He's the wise one of Scientology and the prophet of Islam. Oh, no, no, no. Let's get it right about the person and work of Christ. If you get that wrong, you're not just in deep weeds. You're on the precipice of an eternal eternity without God's saving work in your heart and the righteousness of Christ and face an eternity in hell. Serious business. All right, verses eight and nine. Ready? Look at these verses. Here's what I hear. He says, ask of me, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross purchased his inheritance. The king inherits the kingdom from his father. I, some want to use this as a missions verse. Have you that, that therefore we need to get out because he's given. I just remind you that this is what the father said that to, of the son. It's the son he's, of whom he's speaking. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm agreeing with those who say this passage is not really, it's not to be used like it's often used in missions conferences. This hasn't anything to do with missions. This has to do with the crown rights of Jesus Christ to come and rule over the nations with a rod of iron at his second coming. All right, let's go. I'm coming back to that. So this is going to happen when the Father brings the Son again into the world. All rebellion will be put down by the Lord's anointed. That's it, verse 9. It's a reference to his second coming. Now here's what I want to do. I've got a little sidetrack. Well, I say that. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's incidental or it's some kind of a, a literary footnote. I want to take you through something as to why I want to show you why I think. What, when does this happen? When he says, ask me, I'm going to give you the nations for your inheritance. When? Are you with me? When's that going to happen? Has it already happened? Now, we have friends who have theological persuasions who want to see the kingdom as now the experience and that we are in the kingdom. I think that the Bible is very clear if you take it in its grammatical, literal, uh, literal historical significance that it speaks to a literal earthly kingdom over which Jesus Christ will rule and reign when he comes the second time. We know this is the millennial kingdom to which John refers in, in Revelation in chapter 20. But I want to show you something. Now, I'm going to read some passages. If you can turn there fast and get it, you can go along with me. But I'm going to... I'm going to pick up the pace with this. Here's what I want you to remember. Background. Background. 
All right, what we're talking about in the context here is a rebellious planet. David's thought and language, sure, it was, had to do with the nations rising up against Israel as a kingdom, but ultimately it was an attack upon the, not just the theocratic kingdom, it is the, the kingdom that God is ultimately going to establish through his son, through Jesus Christ. But there is this rejection of God's Messiah. And God is going to establish this kingdom on Zion in Jerusalem. And he's going to reign where the rebellion took place. He will reign there. Now, why do I say that this is going to be this inheritance of the nations? When will this be granted to Christ in its fullest sense? I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 49. I'm reading a verse. I know the context. I'm aware of it. And I want you to know, have some awareness, that Jacob in his dying days, his dying moments, he goes through these blessings and prophecies with regard to his sons. And here he comes to Judah in Genesis 49 and verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. And the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down like a lion, like a lioness. Who will rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah. Get that, get that. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is some poetry here. We're getting a line two that's restating a line one on that point. Until he comes to whom it belongs, the nations will obey him. Way back at Jacob's time, this is before Psalm 2 was written. Oh, but David had marinated his mind in the Old Testament scriptures, in the law, the Torah, he knew it. Now, I'm going to go from there to Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 and 18. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not close at hand. A star will march forth out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the skulls of Moab and the heads of the sons, all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be a possession. Seir, his enemy, will also be a possession, but Israel will act valiantly. Here, the writer is, is Moses speaking. He's speaking to through David, through Israel, to the coming Messiah and this coming king one day, the scepter. Now, Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5. Ah, the book of Revelation. It has been created into something unnecessarily so by even some by evangelical friends as some kind of a puzzle. But there is a very clear layout in the book. You have the seven seals and then you have the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. That's the backbone in describing the day of the Lord and the tribulation. And then there are these insets, little parentheses that come along. And here's one of them in chapter 12. And I'm reading in verse 5, Revelation 12, 5. So the woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who is going to rule over all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was, was suddenly caught up to God and to his throne. Did you get that? <laughs> right in the middle of this account of the great movement of the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. Oh, okay, I'll go to Revelation 19:15. From his mouth extends a sharp sword. Now, context, context. 
This is the picture, the moment, the time in the book of Revelation when Jesus Christ comes, comes to this earth to set up his kingdom. So you read chapter 20, the kingdom follows, his coming. From his mouth extends a sharp sword so that with it he can strike the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod and he stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. You see some movement here through Revelation? Now let me summarize it with this. I'll make uh, two statements, then I'm going to another passage in Revelation. Two statements. The Lord Jesus Christ will receive his rulership over the nations of this earth at his second coming. Am I clear? I don't want to be accused of being unclear. I'm not, even if I'm wrong, I'd rather be clear than I'm wrong. <laughs> but I think this is what's clarity in Scripture. And that, so what this is waiting on, Psalm 2, 8, and 9 awaits the second coming of Jesus Christ. Second statement. Suppose, I'm going to go swerve off to a little, let's get it set down in some contemporary life and thought. Suppose Jesus came back to the earth today. Let's just use your imagination. Let's play a little C.S. Lewis thing. You know, uh, Tolkien. Let's let the imagination within the bounds of truth go at it. Let's say that Jesus, the meek, the mild, the humble Jesus, the one who came the first time, he said, I came not to judge, but to what? He's simply to offer eternal life, to give this hope, this promise. Let's say that this Jesus could show up at the Kremlin today. Uh, Putin, would he love such company, especially in what he's been through in the last two weeks? But Jesus knocks at the door and offers himself to the Kremlin and to Russia for who he is and what he can do and what he will do. Hmm. Play with that a minute. Uh, let's say he goes over to meet Xi Jinping in China. And for that holy, the one who stands before all of those who, who are afraid to ever stop clapping, the first one to stop clapping. And he goes and he offers himself. What do you think would be said? Ah! They, he, they rage. No, down, not you. What about to Iran? He goes there. Or to the Vatican. Hmm. Here he is presenting himself. What would be his reception there? Or Washington, D.C. He goes and presents himself to the Democrat Party, to the Republican Party. Ah, oh my. He says, I'm here to take over. That's what he's saying to all these. I'm here to take over. What do you think will be the response? We know. Rage, anger, bring him down, get him, kill him. If they could get their hands on him again, they'd kill him. They did the first time. They want to do it again. But I'm not through. This is just a little diversion from verses 8 and 9. I want to bring in another Revelation passage, Revelation 2 and verses 26 and 27. I'm still thinking about this inheritance that Jesus is going to put into play. He's going to, it's going to be fulfilled at the second coming. <clears throat> you say, whoa. Where are we in this story? Well, okay, listen. It's writing to the church at Thyatira. Remember those seven letters? The seven churches of Asia Minor? 
And to the one who conquers and who continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule, and the text there reads, shepherd, shepherd them with a rod, iron rod, a scepter. And like clay jars, he will break them to pieces. I'll make this, and then we'll move on down to 10 to 12. But we've got to see this. Jesus Christ is destined to rule the nations of the earth. Faithful believers, faithful believers will be duly rewarded. Hmm. Remember, this, remember the accounts in the Gospels? Ten cities, talent you get, how you use your time, your gifts, and so forth. There will be a dispersion of rewards. Not everybody, there's, there's no equality in rewards. Depends on faithfulness, obedience to the Lord. Overcomers in that passage in, in Revelation 2, 26 and 27, they are encouraged with a promise of reward. Oh, and that church needed it, as we do. The privilege of ruling with Christ. It's being heirs with Christ, Romans 8 and 17 says. And it's reigning with him as we endure faithfully, 2 Timothy 2, 12. What's this mean? Does it mean that uh, there's no place for you in the coming kingdom? No, but what it is is that there are special places given to those who've been faithful in obedience in the enormity of God's rulership over the nations and as Christians are given, I don't know, maybe, maybe he'll give you the opportunity to rule with him and you can exercise your oversight as a believer with a glorified body, Christian and a mind, and everything will be all right and it can be Hawaii. <laughs> it could be, I don't know what, this planet's going to go undergo a lot of good changes. God's got places for his people to serve him and enjoy him and enjoy this planet. So there will be close association with Christ at his coming, persevering in obedience and being victorious in the face of trials. Oh, can I just pause and say this? Some of you are going through, you've gone through and you will go through difficult, some of the worst times could be yet to come. Be buoyed, be strengthened, be encouraged. And in the midst of your tears, let their eyes glisten with the light of that hope that's in Christ and that there will be rewards for faithfully following Christ. Not getting angry with him, not trying to take it out on others, but Lord, you give, you take away. I trust you. Help me to love you more, to be faithful in what I'm doing. I don't understand the fallout, the sequence of events in my life. I just can't seem to put some things together. But Lord, I know that you do all things well and you've promised rewards. <sighs> We're not through. Verses 10 through 12. You ready for the last stanza in this song? We stand on the last stanza? No, we won't stand here, but let's, let's, let's get it right. See what he says. Here's where he goes. The nations are called to worship God the Son. Hmm. This call <clears throat> is issued for obedience and submission. It's like giving them the opportunity. Okay, nations, kings, leaders, peoples of the world, the kings are summoned. The decision is to be made. Throw down your weapons and come out with your hands up. <laughs> it's done. Surrender. Submit. Now that submission is turning from unbelief and turning to faith in Christ. That's repentance. There's a turning. 
And so this is appeal to men to stop rebelling. Stop it. Foolish nations had better surrender before God's wrath is kindled. It's coming. It's coming. Don't hear a lot about God's wrath in popular Christianity and preaching. It's all about your self-esteem and how you can feel better for yourself and, and this cornucopia of goodies that God gives to those. And wrath, we just go around that. It makes people uncomfortable. You may have unsafe people in your service. They may, may be sitting there, and yet they could get offended. What's this preacher talking about? The wrath of God. Ugh, I'm not coming back to this church anymore. Wrath of God. Wrath of God. They're called to lay down their arms and abandon their futile and foolish rebellion. Kidner, this is a good little commentary on the Psalms. He says, the mutinous nations are offered their only hope, which is submission. And the best thing to do is to serve, rejoice, fear, tremble, submit with a kiss of homage. And his patience, God's patience is not placidity. He's not, God is not passive. He's being patient now. It's the patience of God. It leads to repentance, the kindness and patience of God. That's why he's not working at, broken out. And you wonder, you see what's going on in our nation. I've got to hurry to get that to the conclusion. You see what's going on around us. You say, where, is, where are the lightning bolts going to, when are they coming down? God is going to speak. Hold on. Hold that thought. There are only two alternatives in the, in the, the call to surrender. One, to refuse to surrender and persist in rebellion is to experience God's eternal wrath. It's the king who will smash the opposition. And to, or, or, I prefer this, take refuge in God. Submit to the Son is to take refuge in God's anointed, Jesus Christ. And therefore, in the Lord as well. Only in the Son is there safety from the wrath of God. Only in Christ. Only in Christ. Is that the safe place from his wrath? Now, having said all this, I want to I get down to some shoe leather matters. I wrestled with this. I said, I, I know this is wonderful. It ends on that high note. Blessed, blessed, happy are those. It's great. But how do we live in an upside down world? Oh, have you forgotten that lead in? Uh, the upside-down world we're living in. I'll say two things. One, lay down your arms and surrender. Repent. If there is one in this audience this morning or who would stumble upon this message in some way or another, or the message of the gospel, repent. There is, must be unconditional submission to the Son of God. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your idols. Turn, turn, and come and receive by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ in his atoning work for your righteousness to come into his presence. Your only refuge is from the wrath of God, is God's mercy unfolded in the cross of Christ. The only hope, the only hope. And Jesus Christ will turn your world upside down. Mm -hmm. He will. He will set your heart aflame in love for him and give you a totally new way of thinking and living in a world that's living and following the big lie. You want to know where to start? The big lie? What am I to believe? Who am I to believe? 
All right, then let's go to this. Build your life, secondly, build your life as a kingdom citizen in preparation for the messianic kingdom to come and the eternal kingdom. Okay? What is the road of obedience that should be followed? What's some of it? I can't exhaust it here. But I thought of this much. Take it for what it's worth. I hope it helps. This turning requires a turning from the lies that are dominating our present society. Can we start there? We've got a lot of lies floating around. You know what's scary? This, this, what's scary is that lies have become an authorized way of conducting business and relating to one another, and there is no, seems to be no conscience about lies. None. Among our elected officials, and maybe one of your favorite elected officials, and don't ever discount that. Is this person telling the truth? They're not? That's not a good sign. Okay, back to the point. I'll mention several areas in which the lie pops up. The big lie. Oh, I, the big lie. What is it? You know what it is? It's the big lie that all sins are bound up in it. Has God said? Has God said? That's when the big lie was brought to Adam, to Eve. Has God said? Pack them all into that. So do not succumb to the lie about reality. The lie about reality. Who would have thought that it could have happened? Uh, I pray for young people. I would pray, whoever comes and fills this pulpit in the year, days and years ahead, and as this church goes forward, that you have certainly a great heart for young people, for children. We started out this way, hundreds of children in vacation Bible school. You know, they, the purple people, the yellow people, the red people, and you know, running over these grounds in those hot summer days and teachers coming in tired and faithfully working, teaching Sunday school, Sunday after Sunday, week after week. And now here we are years later. And you can see some of the fruit of that. And what's going to have to happen? The same kind of thing. A new generation can rise up and all these young people we have some in the audience now, a few teenagers. I wish we had more, but God's providence has given us the direction to go. Let's keep that in mind. That's a sidebar. Though God's moral law is set and lies about the creation order. Oh, what our young people are being told. Oh, the redemptive work. Listen, think of this. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ is imprinted upon the institution of marriage. It's male plus female, which is designed to be a gospel story. It's, <clears throat> it's M plus, little equation, this is, my math goes about this far. M plus F equals child. Not M plus M, not F plus F. It's M plus F. Reality. Reality, reality, there is no third sex. Oh, and now there are those who smuggle the word gender into the vocabulary. Oh, it's in the dictionary, it can be used. But it's a Trojan horse. It's malleable. You can make room for other genders other than the two biological sexes. Oh, young people, listen to me. We older folks, we're passing off the scene. We don't have much more time. You've got a whole life in front of you. And what we older people must do, this is our role, is let's pull ourselves together and do everything we can. God grant us the grace and mercy 
to reach out to families, to homes, to those who are disenfranchised and broken. Oh, the sorrows and the troubles and the trials. Oh, I, I heard this heartbreaking story yesterday uh, from someone who works in a place that's a restore house where women come who've been abused and just been through hellacious experiences and they come there to get help. And how she, this particular woman, had come there and she had been on uh, amphetamines and she, uh, and she had, uh, and, a, and a man had introduced her to these things that almost killed her. And uh, she had been abused and just the end of a rope and only about 30 years of age. And she's there and now she wants the hope that's in Jesus Christ. It was a good story and it's, oh, I pray for her. I know her name and I'm praying for her. But oh, there's so many like that now. So many lives that are just torn apart. Ah, I must go, must move on. Uh, another fact, don't succumb to the lie about reality and do not fall for any deception about ourselves and others. Sin is the mafia, is mafia headquarters set up in the human heart. Lest you thought you were, we're all just, we're good people. The human race is not good. The human race stinks. And individual, individuals, we're sinners. We're sinners. Now, we're in the image of God. In Mago Dei, I understand that. We have the imprint of God, and we're capable of doing good things, helpful things. Oh, what a mess we would be in if the evil one had his full play at work to just completely destroy any vestige of the image of God in us. That said, that said, the only match for this mafia headquarters within each of us is the triunity of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. No match for the mafia. That's sin that wants to come out and do its nefarious, deceitful work and lead us off in directions where we should not go. Satan is not our friend. He's a schemer. He's the godfather of all deceptions. Human beings are not good. World leaders have left us with a legacy of the 11th, what someone has called the 11th plague of Egypt. And it's Lenin, Stalin, Marxists, Marx, Hitler, Mao, Fidel Castro, host of others who've written, spoken, and enslaved millions with their lives. And you know the tragedy? Some young people today are being attracted to Marxism. Oh, it's slain, it's millions, it's millions. Oh, we have so much before us, but let's go to the third and let's pray. Never forget that all lies have God as their ultimate object. All lies. But some lies are, des are designed to be direct hits, uh, variations, direct hits on God. We hear a lot about change. Oh, we do. That's kind of the upward. We want to get change. We need change. Oh, but no, you know what often travels with this word change? More often than not, change is camouflage for refusing to obey God. Uh, you got to think that one through. But here we are left with Psalm 2. God, God as, God as Savior, God as Judge. I read this story some while ago, and I've heard variations of it. It's based on a true story. It goes back to frontier days. There was a wagon, wagon out in the old dusty street. 
this frontier town, and there was a little child in that wagon, and the horses got spooked, and the wagon just went flying down the road, flying with that little child in there. This younger man saw what had happened, came to the rescue. He knew horses, he knew what to do, and he stopped what could have been an inevitable death of that little child. Well, that little child in that wagon grew up. Grew up and became a lawless, fist-in-the-face-of-God kind of person. And one day, because of that, he comes into a court. And lo and behold, who is the judge? <laughs> the judge is that young man who became, in his preparation for life work, became the judge. He's the one who had saved the child. And so the young man, who had been the child, who had been rescued, thought he could plead this, a little plea bargaining. Oh, that you saved me the first time. Could you not do that again for me? Because the crime, the charges against the crime were awful. And the judge said to him, I was your savior the first time, but now I'm your judge, and I sentence you to be hanged by a rope. What will you do? Oh, my. Maybe someone's listening to my voice, and God has done merciful things for you in life, but you know, you may be counting on simply sentiment and good feelings to take you into the presence of Christ in eternity with him. Don't rely on that. Put your reliance, your faith, lean into strongly the finished work of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice, which is sufficient to forgive us of all our sin and make us new creatures in Christ and revolutionize our thinking. May Psalm 2 never be far away from our thoughts. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for this portion of your word. Oh, Lord, what would we do without the anchorage that, Lord, the Psalms, as they were sung, written by your servant David, but under the guidance of the Spirit, so that we would know how to think and live and work and praise you and worship you. We thank you for the salvation that's in Christ and him alone, whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the men now if they will come. Uh, and we're going to do the appropriate thing, the right thing, and we're going to thank the Lord. We have the table before us. Jesus left it with his disciples and for us. This was not an afterthought of Jesus. It's just sort of like having one last meal with his men. <laughs> this was a Passover meal. And so then he comes to that meal and he sets apart two things, the eating of the bread, the drinking of the wine, the cup. And in this is a lesson that would be indelibly impressed upon their thinking and our thinking, it should be. Here's what he said. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup 
after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this work, atoning work of Christ, let's carry this with as God works through our senses now. We'll smell, we'll taste. And we do this together to give glory and honor to the Lord. Let's bow. And as we bow, you pray and ready your heart and prepare your heart for it.